Good evening, brothers and sisters. Please, if you would, open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. We're going to be looking at verses 57 through 68 this evening. As you do that, I'd like to remind you that the theme of Holy Week this year is the the Voices of Passion Week. This morning, Pastor Fender He preached on Jesus's triumphal entry. Tonight, as we continue our journey to the cross, we will focus our attention, as Pastor Ken said, on the trial, Jesus's trial before religious leaders. Before we read tonight's text, I want to help you get oriented to where we are in the passion narrative. This morning, We talked about Jesus entering into Jerusalem through Matthew 21 to Matthew 25. Jesus continues to minister in Jerusalem. He cleanses the temple. He continues to speak in parables and he foretells his imminent death at the cross of Calvary. And as we approach Matthew 26, we witness the religious leaders plot to kill Jesus. We hear Jesus's, Matthew brings us in to hear Jesus's agonizing prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. And finally, we see Jesus's betrayal and eventual arrest. After being arrested, Jesus is drugged like a rag doll from place to place. And finally, he is before a council of religious leaders. And this is where we park the text tonight. Before we read this text, let me go to the Lord in prayer as we need his help. Father, this text before us tonight is excruciatingly painful to read and to hear. But by your spirit, humble us to feel the weight and the magnitude of what Jesus endured for the sake of your glory and for the sake of our salvation. Give us ears to hear. Give me your word to speak no one else's. Convict, correct, and console us through the power of your word this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Read with me now Matthew 26, 57 through 68. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. 
Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? This is the word of God. Thanks be to you, O God. It is all too easy to point fingers, isn't it? It's easy to point the finger at someone else and say, it's your fault. Whether it's a husband pointing to his wife when there is marital strife, whether it's roommates arguing over tension in the house, whether it is church members, church members arguing over the present state of the community. It is all too easy to point the finger. Readings tonight's text, you will feel as if you are a bystander to what happened to Jesus. It will make you feel as though Jesus was condemned and sent to the cross by the sinful religious leaders back then. Reading tonight's text will make you want to point the finger at the religious leaders as the sole reason Jesus was sent to the cross. However, although this text does give us a firsthand account of who physically condemned Jesus, God's word to you tonight is not just what they did. It is not just more information to put in your biblical database to say, I know something about this which occurred back then. No, no, no. We will not do that. We will miss the point of the text and we will miss God's word to us tonight if we don't see our own sin in the actions of the religious leaders. There will be no pointing fingers tonight. We must all acknowledge that our sin, not theirs only, but our sin sent Jesus to the cross. Hear this quote from Canon Peter Green. He says this, only the man who is prepared to own his share in the guilt of the cross may claim his share in its grace. Do you want to claim the power and the grace of the resurrection Easter Sunday? You must admit your sin tonight. Do you want to celebrate the fact that Jesus rose from the grave and defeated death? You must admit guilt tonight. Next Sunday, God's people all over the world will gather together to celebrate the central, most decisive event in our faith, in the Christian faith, and that is the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. Next Sunday will be a glorious Sunday because we will bask in this reality. Death has been defeated. Sins have been forgiven. Victory has been won. But before we can revel in that, before you and I can celebrate that, we have to wrestle with the harsh reality that we played a part in sending him to the cross. This text before us tonight is showing us that if we acknowledge our sin, 
If we acknowledge our role in sending Jesus to the cross, we situate ourselves, we position ourselves to celebrate the power of forgiveness next Sunday when we celebrate his resurrection. This text does this. It draws us in. It captivates us. And then it shows us that our sin, not only the sin of the religious leaders, played a role in Good Friday. If you own your guilt tonight, you can claim your grace Easter Sunday. Next Sunday will be more joyous, more sweet, more hopeful if you acknowledge your sin tonight. So, Brother Chris, from this particular text, how do we see that our sin played a role in sending Jesus to the cross? First, this text shows us that our sin blinded us to the identity of Jesus. In our flesh, you and I cannot know God. We cannot see Jesus. The natural man is unable to see Jesus for who he is, let alone cherish or love him. This means that for you and for me, at one point or another, we were blind to the identity of Jesus. We were blind to who he really is. And we see this in the scene of Passion Week, when Jesus is before religious leaders. We're talking about religious leaders. We're not talking about those sinners over there who don't know God. We're talking about people who swear they know the law of God and can teach the law of God. Yet sin, by its very nature, blinds us all, even those who are the most religious. There are three scenes that give three different perspectives on the way man is blinded, the way sin blinds man to Jesus. First, we see how sin blinds man to the work of Jesus. Look with me at verse 61. The religious leaders were seeking false testimony. They wanted to condemn Jesus. So they were trying to find testimony that would be strong enough to put him to death. They were having trouble finding it because he was innocent. But finally, it says in verse 61 that two men come forward and they say that this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God. This is what Jesus said. He said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Now, if these words were true, and if this meaning were true, Jesus would be guilty of opposing God. However, Jesus never really said that, or we could say he never really meant that. Rather, what the Apostle John does in John 2 is he shares us what he really meant. In John 2, he was not referring to this physical temple. He was referring to the temple of his body. Sin by its very nature, blinds us to the work of Jesus. But not only does it blind us to the work of Jesus, it blinds us to the glory of Jesus. Look with me at verses 63 through 64. Again, Matthew records these words from the lips of Caiaphas. He says, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Look how Jesus responds to him. You have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. 
Caiaphas is the high priest and the other religious leaders, when they were looking at Jesus and when they were thinking of a Messiah, even as it was said this morning, there was this nationalistic, anti-Roman undertones to it. That's it. Yet Jesus responds to him by saying, you have said so. Another way of putting it, he's like, that's what you said. But I am more than that. And Jesus responds in verse 64, but I tell you, let me add to what you know about me. From now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus responds to him and puts together Daniel 7 and Psalm 110, and Jesus elevates his status by saying, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is greater than any earthly kingdom. Therefore, I am not just here to overthrow Rome. I am here for more than that. I am here to save the world. And I will return to judge the world. Caiaphas had no idea who he was talking to. He was talking to the one who would defeat death, save humans, sit at the right hand of God, and return to judge both the living and the dead. Sin blinds men to the glory of Jesus. But not just that. Lastly, sin blinds men to the divinity of Jesus. Look with me at these horrible words. Then they spit in his face and struck him and slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? These men whose spit on Jesus and were striking him, they were mocking Jesus. Jesus believes he's the son of God, does he? They did not believe this mere man could prophesy. God could really do that. They did not believe this mere man, this carpenter from Nazareth was divine. Sure, this man could say he was God, but was he actually divine? No, he wasn't. You know how I know? He can't even tell me who spit in his face. He can't even tell me who struck him. You are not divine. For all of these people, the false witnesses, Caiaphas, and those who spit on Jesus, sin blinded them from seeing Jesus for who he really was. And just as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the God of this world has blinded us to keep us from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Sin blinds man from seeing Jesus. I have to give my late grandmother a shout out for this illustration. Uh, she loved National Geographic. She loved Animal Planet. She loved Shark Week. She loved all things about animals and as I was sitting here thinking for an illustration I was kept hitting a, a, a roadblock or illustration block and finally something about uh, concealing uh, camouflage it clicked oh let's find an animal who does this let's find an animal who does this and I was doing some research and I found out about an owl butterfly. Some of y'all may know about an owl butterfly. I had no idea before I did a little research. But the owl butterfly uses the camouflage tactic of disruptive color, uh, coloration, 
where its identity is disguised through uh, various coloration patterns. So on the wings of the butterfly, the, the pattern looks like an eye. It's very odd, check it out. It looks like eye spots. The eye spots of the butterfly conceals its identity from predators by making the predator, as it looks at the, the wings, it's like, whoo, that's an owl, making it scared to approach the butterfly. Many times, predators will be right in front of a butterfly, and though the butterfly is actually there, the predator doesn't approach because it's concealed by its wings. The predator thinks it's an owl, and even though it's right in front of him, he will not approach it. He will not attack it. In the same way, just as the coloration pattern conceals the identity of the butterfly, so our sin conceals the identity of Jesus when he is right in front of us. Jesus has always been before you. But because of your sin, because of my sin, we couldn't see him. How could the religious leaders in the first century, how could they be blind to Jesus? He was right in front of them, performing miracles right there in front of them. Let us not point fingers too quickly. Sin does the same thing to us. Jesus has always been working in front of us, saving people, saving us, sustaining us, upholding us. Yet we, just like the false witnesses, just like the high priest, and just like those who spit on Jesus, we were blind to him. So if tonight, if you trust in Christ, you, take, you can take no credit for this because you were blind and God, the Holy Spirit, came in and gave you eyes to see. And if tonight you do not trust Jesus, your sin is blinding you to him. He is right in front of you. And we must ask the Holy Spirit to give you eyes to see. Sin blinds us to the person of Jesus. But that's not it. Unfortunately, brothers and sisters, your sin goes a step further. And your sin moves from keeping you blind to the person of Jesus to rejecting the person of Jesus. This text shows us that your sin, not simply theirs, causes you to reject the person of Jesus. Being blinded to the person of Jesus isn't a neutral thing. After sin blinds you to the person of Jesus, it escalates and says, now let's reject him. Look at verses 57 through 59 with me. Now, I won't be able to double-click on verse 58, but rejection just doesn't happen with only the religious leaders. Peter, the rock, the one who said, I'm not going anywhere, rejects and denies Jesus. But we will have to save that for another day. Tonight, we're going to focus on the religious leader's rejection of Jesus. Look again with me at verse 59. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. Their intention 
when they brought him before this council was to put him to death. The verdict was already made in their minds. All they needed to do was reverse engineer the process, find the right evidence, let's put him to death. He was guilty. They wanted, no, 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 they didn't want him. They needed Jesus dead. But the question we have to ask is why? Why would religious leaders who know the law of God, who supposedly love the law of God, why would they want the Son of Man, God in the flesh, dead? Why would anybody want to get rid of Jesus? Two reasons. Verse 65, listen to what the high priest says after hearing Jesus testify that he is the Son of Man. Look at verse 65. The high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses, we don't need to call anybody else in. You have heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. After hearing Jesus say that he will sit at his right hand in power to judge the earth, they concluded Jesus was blaspheming the Holy One of Israel. And although Jesus was telling the truth and he was actually innocent, the sin that so blinded them was the very sin that moved them to want to put him to death. So anybody in their minds that has the audacity to say that they are on par with God, according to the Levitical law, they should be put to death, right? We're not talking about a slap on the hand. Levitical law says they should be stoned. Jesus deserves death. This man, this carpenter deserves death. He isn't God. The religious leaders were ab abiding by the law of God, right? They had to kill him. They had to reject him. He wasn't God. Oh, how sin blinds us. But second, Matthew gives us even more detail, and we're going to have to go a little bit outside of this section. Go with me to chapter 27, verse 18. Just thumb there really quickly. And Matthew records something that's very interesting here. Matthew says this of Pilate, who is a shrewd, honest man. He says, speaking of Pilate, he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Pilate saw something in the religious leaders. He looked at their actions and what they said, and he summed up. A Gentile summed up. They're delivering him up for some other reason, but it's out of envy. They, the religious leaders, wanted him out because they were envious of him. They were envious of his authority. They were envious of his unwillingness to bow his knee to their traditions. They were envious that people received him. Jesus came into the religious leader's life and turned it upside down on his authority. And he demanded that they follow him, not the other way around. How could they declare the Son of God guilty of blasphemy? How could they reject the Messiah who would eventually save the world from sin? How could they do this? Again, let us not point fingers too quickly. 
Just as they yelled away with him, just as they said he deserves death, so our sin rejects the person of Jesus because we too are blinded by sin. We have missed the point if we believe that the religious leaders are the only ones who wanted Jesus Jesus out of their space if he comes in and turns their world upside down. Brothers and sisters, have you ever had plans for your life, for your children, for your church, for your job, and you know that these plans are the best plans that there could be? Have you ever wanted something so badly and you know that this has to be the way it's meant to be? And then out of nowhere, this man, this God-man steps in and says, no. Jesus tells you and he tells me that he is Lord of our life. So Jesus steps into our life and dictates how we spend our time. He challenges our traditions. He empties us from our pride and our security, the things we find pride and security in. Jesus steps into our life and calls us away from those pet sins. As Lord, Jesus steps into our life and places demands on every square inch of our life. And how do we respond? Let's bargain, Jesus. You can have most of my life, but you can't have it all. You can have 96% of it, but this 4% here, I got to keep that to myself. And Jesus responds, no, I want that too. And when he does this, we just like the religious leaders feel squeezed by Jesus and we want our space. Jesus, I need a little breathing room here. Jesus, you cramming my style a little bit. Give me a little elbow room here. And Jesus again says, no. So we react just like the religious leaders when he does this. And we too reject him. And we desire that he would get out of our face with those demands on our life. Our sin, just like theirs, rejects Jesus. Our sin, just like theirs, would send Jesus to the cross. If you are like me, this is a hard pill to swallow. Not King Jesus. I wouldn't do that to King Jesus. Not the one who would lay his life down for me. This is a hard pill to swallow. But Jesus was not simply a victim to our wills, our sinful wills. Jesus was not simply a victim of the sinful wills of the religious authorities. No, 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 no. Do not believe that for one second. Embedded in this text is one more reason that our sin caused Jesus to go to the cross. Yes, your sin blinded you to the person of Jesus. Yes, your sin leads you to reject the person of Jesus when he slides up and demands that you pay homage to him. But because of these very things, these very things, Jesus willingly goes to the cross to save you from your sin. In this text, we see that your sin caused Jesus to willingly go to the cross to save you, that you might be his people. The question is, what events led to Jesus' crucifixion? The religious leader's sin, yes. Your sin, yes. But if that were it, 
There could be a picture in your mind of an unwilling Jesus going to the cross. As if Jesus was digging his heels in the ground as sin yanked him across the floor. Imagine a dog who doesn't want to be brought inside and you have him by his leash and you're pulling him in and he's got his little heels in the ground. That could be the picture in your mind of Jesus if it was just the sin of the religious leaders or the, our sin that took him to the cross. No. Yes, your sin sent Jesus to the cross, but your sin sent Jesus to the cross because he wanted to save you from sin. Your sin sent Jesus to the cross because he wanted to bring you back in right relationship with the God who made you. That's why sin, that's why your sin, my sin, sent Jesus to the cross. So Jesus has been arrested and he's standing before trial. Jesus is being questioned and cross-examined in the midst of all these accusations, all the voices being, these lies being hurled at him. How does Jesus respond? Look with me at verse 63. But Jesus remained silent. The high priest is asking him, Jesus, how are you going to defend yourself? Jesus, all these accusations and allegations being slung your way, how will you respond and defend yourself? Dead silence. Jesus says nothing. He resists them not. Yes, eventually Jesus does respond to Caiaphas, but the overall tone is this. Jesus remained silent. This, emphasi this emphasizes that Jesus was not resistant. Just as Jesus did not resist being arrested in the garden, so now as he stands before these religious leaders, Jesus is not resistant to their accusations. He does this not because he's scared, not because he's weak, not because he's afraid, but because he knew his father's will. Jesus, as the son of God, was well acquainted with the Old Testament scriptures. Now, Jesus is fully God, and it's easy to assert that he knows everything, which is true, but Jesus learned his identity, his mission, and his purpose from the Old Testament scriptures. So through Isaiah chapter 53, the chapter on the suffering servant, Jesus became aware of his suffering and the implications that it had on his life. Isaiah 53, 7 reads like this. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Sounds like how he responded to Caiaphas' accusations, right? Jesus knew what he had to do, and he knew that he had to suffer. Yet he also knew the outcome of his suffering. Isaiah 53:10, 11. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. 
Jesus knew that his silence, his silence meant his death, but that through his death, salvation would be brought to his people. Jesus knew for his people to be made righteous, he had to suffer and bear their iniquity. Jesus knew for him to go up in the power of the resurrection and to share that with his people, he had to go down and taste the bitter sting of death for his people. So Jesus, knowing this, remained silent in the garden and before the religious leaders as they hurled accusations at him so that he might do the Father's will and so that he might save his people. Stephen Sharnock, a theologian, affirms Jesus' willingness when he says, he that can rescue himself from the hands of men. He who has the power to escape the hands of wicked men and will not may be said to die willingly, though he dies violently. There is no other way you miss the glory of Jesus' death if you do not see the voluntary willingness of Jesus to do so. As countercultural, as upside down as it is, Jesus came willingly to risk his life and to die for those, not, not for those who loved him, but for those who hated him. As unnatural to humans as it sounds, Jesus came to save enemies and to make them his people. Only in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ does the hero of the book, the hero of the story, come to die for the villain in the story. Only in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the question you and I have to wrestle with tonight is this. Do you agree with the scriptures that Jesus came not for the righteous, but for sinners? Do you humbly acknowledge that you, even though you are nice, and I say that not hypothetically, I know many of you, even though that you are nice, even though you are not as bad as some people you work with or as people as you read about and see on the internet, even though you come to church faithfully, even though most of you, if not all of you, have not committed some egregious sin, do you acknowledge that your sin is the reason that Jesus went to the cross? I implore you on behalf of this text to acknowledge your sin. Acknowledge your role in Jesus' death so that after he is battered and bruised, after he is put in a tomb, when he rises from the grave three days later on that early Sunday morning, you can claim your share in the beauty, the grace, and the power of his resurrection. Acknowledge your sin tonight that you may celebrate Easter Sunday. After I close, there will be a time, if you look in your bulletin, there will be a time of reflection for you to acknowledge your sin before the Lord. The African-American spiritual, were you there, will be sung over you as you go before the Lord to acknowledge before him your sin and your brokenness. Tonight, there will be no pointing fingers. We will not point the finger at the religious leaders. We will not point the finger at our parents or anyone else, but rather tonight we will look at ourselves. We will address our own sin. Although this can be scary and uncomfortable, 
There is grace on the other side. Only the man who is prepared to own his share in the guilt of the cross, as scary and as uncomfortable as it may be, may claim his share in its grace. Own your guilt tonight. Claim your grace Easter Sunday. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for grace. Father, give us grace to acknowledge our brokenness and our sin before you. Father, as we process and reflect Holy Spirit, meet us right now in this space. Convict us of sin, but don't leave us there. Allow us to look to the cross and to look joyfully and hopefully for that resurrection Sunday where sin and death will be defeated. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.